0: Now, as I mentioned, um, the point really of this series uh, is not just to look um, at the specific parts of the Bible that we're looking at, but to look at how they all fit uh, together and how it becomes uh, one story. So, to help us do that, we're going to turn now to uh, the New Testament, to John chapter 1. It's on page 1063 in the Pew Bibles, and don't worry, it is a shorter reading than the last one. Um, but it's John chapter 1, reading from verses 1, to 14 on page 1063. Again, hear the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's join together in prayer. Our Father, we do give You thanks for Your Word. And we pray that just now You would speak to us by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, would You prepare our hearts to hear what You have to say to us this evening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts. Bless your name, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. I heard a a stand-up comedian a little while ago. I didn't think he was a very good stand-up comedian, but he was talking about touring the world as stand-up comedians presumably do. And he was saying that in every hotel that he went into, this man, Gideon, kept leaving him a book. Now, of course, he was talking about the Bible. And he said, I reckon Gideon was an Irishman. Because every time he told a story, he started at the beginning. I told you he wasn't a very good stand up comedian. (laughs) But perhaps, as Julie Andrews said, let's start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. I suppose, in any overview of the Bible, you might expect us to start in Genesis 1 and the story of creation. It's pretty hard to avoid. It's a well known portion of Scripture, it's one of the most well known, it's one of the most famous one of the most recognizable any student who's ever studied hebrew knows the words bereshit bara elohim et hashamayim va et in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth you knew that marty didn't you yeah yeah <laughs> well known words controversial words perhaps between christians and, and those who don't believe in a creating god atheists non believers but also sometimes between Christians who disagree on how to interpret them. Is this mysterious and poetic text as it is, is it meant to be taken literally? Is it describing something that is so majestic and so far beyond us that this poetic form is just used to describe and relate something to us? And if it's the latter of those, well then, where do some of the the scientific theories fit in of origins and where the universe comes from? Debates about Genesis 1 rage on, and I assume that they probably always will. And we're not primarily thinking about Genesis tonight because the beginning is a very good place to start, and nor are we very interested in the controversy, although we will say a little bit about it. But the reason we're interested in it tonight and as part of this series is because it is crucial for understanding the big picture of the Bible The apostle John clearly thought so. He started off his gospel in the beginning. My Greek's not so hot. I think anarchy are the first two words, but I've lost the rest. But he chose the same words, but in Greek, in the beginning. And all these themes, creation, through him all things were made. Nothing was made without him. The theme of light, God said, let there be light. And John says, in Jesus was light, and that light was the light of men. Everything about beginnings and creation and light and power and life and God and the world are in there. From the very beginning, right through to Jesus coming into the world, right through to the new creation which God's children look forward to in hope, Genesis 1 is a key building block in all of that. So why is that? Why is it that for Christians, these few short short chapters at the start of the Bible have so much impact on everything else? Well, to answer that tonight, I want us to just look at these verses together. I realize that I, I read the whole creation story. Don't worry, we'll not be looking at all of them in detail. But I want us just to pick them apart a little bit to help us understand just exactly what is going on. And the first thing I want us to recognize is that it is highly poetic. Now, that's more obvious in the Hebrew than in the English, but it it is a very poetic text. Now, that doesn't mean it can't literally be true, of course, but whatever way we look at it, we have to appreciate the form of the text as it comes to us, as a poetic text that will help us understand it. We've loads of repetition in there, which is perhaps unsurprising in a poem, and God said And God said, the NIV sometimes translates that phrase as, then God said, but the Hebrew is just, and God said, in verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, and 29. So, it's in there a few times. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day, and so on for all six days of creation. And God saw that it was good, or in the case of the sixth day, and God saw that it was very good. Each day, let there be this, and there was this. Let there be light, and there was light. And even that sentence, I- in English, what we have, let there be light, and it was and there was light. Well, the words that are repeated are, are the words light, it's in there twice, and the word and is in there twice as well. But but in Hebrew it's it's so much more obvious. Now this is the last of the Hebrew, don't worry, but it says, And God said, he or Va, yehi, or. So that little phrase, he, or it's in there twice. Yi he or, that means let there be light. Va means and. Yihi or there was light. And the reason why I mention that is because when this was written, most people did not read or write. They couldn't have picked up the text of Genesis 1 and just read it out loud for themselves. They didn't know how to do that. They heard it. They heard the word of the Lord. And as they heard that, they would hear that phrase, Yihi or Va or It was repeated, and in every day of creation, that is the case. Letter for letter, syllable for syllable, it was the same. We know how to translate it because some of the dots and squiggles around it, that's how we know it means, let there be light, and there was light. But the sound of the Hebrew, it's exactly the same. So it's a very poetic text. It's a very repetitive text, and especially to the ear of the original hearer. It's highly significant that they'll hear these phrases over and over again. And then secondly, there are big parallels between days one to three and four to six. I don't imagine you can read that up there, but it is on the sheet in front of you. On day one, God says, let there be light. On day four, He creates the sun, moon, and stars, the the bodies which were to, to govern the sky. On day two, God separates out the sea and the sky. And on day five, He creates the animals that are in the sea and the sky the birds and the fish and then on day three he creates land and vegetation on day six he creates the creatures that will live on the land including humanity again these parallels are very significant and they would have been picked up by the original hearers and and these days have to be linked together somehow i think does it make sense that on day one god said let there be light but he didn't create the sun until day four I think those two have to be linked in some way. Now, it is possible, of course, if God wanted there to be light without the sun. Of course, God could do that. We're told that he will do that in the new creation. But I think those parallels are quite significant. Again, this is being given to us in the Bible in a way that is highly poetic. And the final poetic aspect is that some of the language is a little bit ambiguous. And I think that's intentional. And I don't mean that to undermine the text in any way but there are a number of examples of this throughout the text the most famous one uh, though not certainly the only one is the hebrew word for the day and um, it's the word yom it can be translated as day in other places in the bible it is translated as era or age when god says that this will surely be to the end of the age or for all ages that is the word that is used in hebrew sometimes it's even translated as the word year So, many Christians, they believe in a literal six-day creation. They take the word yom as meaning day with a rest on a literal seventh day. Many don't. Some people see it as some kind of process that happened in six stages, one after the other, but not necessarily 24 hours. And others still see it as entirely poetic, not in six stages at all, but just this kind of poetic description of, of what God did, but it's something that we could never, never understand, exactly how He did all of this. It's par that we couldn't fathom. So, God has no intention of telling us here how He did it. He simply tells us that He did it. Now, if all of that really interests you, if if that's riveting to you, I'm not going to say any more about it. I'll refer you to our podcast, an episode from the 21st of September last year when I discussed that at greater length, and I'm sure you all remember that too. For what it's worth, I I suspect that it's not a literal six days. I think the parallels between days one to three and four to six convey that that Genesis 1 isn't a scientific manual, but it's a poem describing what happened. Now don't mishear me when I say that, I believe that Genesis 1 is absolutely true, but I think the truth that it teaches is best understood by proper understanding of the original text in its context, appreciating how it's written. So that's why I'm putting it to you this way, and if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, I'd be delighted to chat with you, even if you disagree strongly with me, that's fine. The former scientist in me would absolutely love that, especially if you have questions around origins. But that's not really the point of tonight, as I've said. I've tried to deal with that as quickly as the scientist in me would allow me to. The point of tonight is to understand this text, and I think the crucial point, wherever you come from on understanding Genesis 1, is that we're dealing with a poem. Whether it's a poem that conveys something that's literal or whether it's not, you must recognize that the text, I think, isn't written scientifically. It has these poetic elements, and it's shrouded in mystery. And yet, even though we recognize that it's a poem and it's mysterious, there are a number of things which the text conveys which are extremely important for us, whichever way you look at it. Firstly, we see that God is the creator. Now, this is really important because there are lots of people out there who don't believe in a creator, God. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, spoken to one of those people. If the next time you do, maybe tell them that if they don't believe in God as a creator, the odds that they believe in for the world to be as it is with everything sort of perfectly spaced out, perfect distance from the sun, perfect uh, uh, composition of gases on the earth, perfect water and pH and temperature and all the rest for us to live. A scientist worked out recently that the odds of that happening from an explosion were 1 in 700 quintillion. And a quintillion has 20 zeros, by the way, so it's a big number. 1 in 700 quintillion. Genesis clearly asserts that however it happened, God is the creator. God spoke and it was. It's maybe an obvious thing to say, but it's a key building block of Genesis 1 that God is the creator. He is the instigator of all this. And he creates through his word. He speaks and it simply is. Now, the word's going to become important when we come to look at John a little bit later on, but for now, it's simply. Uh, enough to say that God speaks, God uses His Word, and it is so it happens. God is a creator, and He is supremely powerful. And thirdly, what He creates is good. It's easy for us to, to lose sight of that in there, even though it's mentioned several times, because when we look at the world around us, yes, there's a lot of beauty. We were singing about it in our first song, But when we look at the world around us, there's also a lot that's messed up and a lot that's been damaged and a lot that isn't so good and a lot of extreme weather and and lots of things that we could talk about. But what God creates, what God makes is good. In fact, it is very good. And then somehow or other, we see that God interacts with time. And this is an idea which again comes back in John chapter 1. The first word in in the Hebrew Bereshit, it it, it actually literally says, in a beginning. It doesn't say in the beginning, it says in a beginning, literally. And I think the reason for that is because God doesn't have a beginning. As it were, with the story of God, there isn't a beginning. This is our beginning. This is the beginning as we know it. It's the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of everything we know. But it's not the beginning of God. He is an eternal being. And yet this story clearly conveys that God interacts with time. Evenings and mornings and days, however we understand those words, they are units of time. God interacts with time for the first time, it seems. And we also see that each part of creation has a purpose. No part of God's creation, we read it in Genesis 1 and 2, no part is useless or wasted or valueless. Lots of things have a stated purpose, so when God makes the greater lights in the sky, they are to rule, they are to govern the sky, as the NIV puts it, in day and in night. And some things have that kind of stated purpose. Other creatures, well, they're created according to their kind. So, they're created in an appropriate way, in line with who they are and what their function is. So for example, you don't get fish made with feathers because they just couldn't swim and it wouldn't work. No, they're made so that they can do their job. They can do their job of taking in oxygen and giving out carbon dioxide alongside all those plants underwater, which are doing the same, but also photosynthesizing. So taking in carbon dioxide and giving out oxygen. And don't worry if you don't understand all of that. I think I've confused myself. But the point is the gases are all balanced. Everything is made according to its kind. Everything has a function. It's not random things are made according to their kind, and everything has a purpose and a value. What then about humanity? Well, the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. It's the only thing that is created which we're told is made in God's image, and that's so important that it's actually said three times between verses 26 and 27, that humanity is made in the image of God. Why might that be? important? Well, lots of people have all sorts of different ideas about what it means to be um, made in the image of God. Does it mean that in some some way we're like God? Well, Genesis says that we're made in His likeness. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, I think firstly it means that we're to represent Him on earth to the rest of creation and to each other. Sorry about the linguistics in this, but in in the Greek text of Genesis 1, the word used here is icon. It's a word we all know, icon. We're not big fans of icons in Presbyterianism, but that's the word. It's an icon. And an icon simply represents something that is greater. So if that's what we are, well then we represent God on earth. He is infinitely greater than we are, of course, but we represent Him on this earth to the rest of creation and to each other. Secondly, we have a unique relationship with God. Unlike any other creature, no other creature is made in His image. So, we're able to, to talk with God. We're able to have interaction with God that other creatures do not. And then thirdly, we have a unique role to play as God's image bearers. What is that role? Well, I think it's laid out in verse 28 of Genesis 1. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this is what is said immediately after we're told that we're made in God's image. We're told that God blesses them and he commands them to rule over the fish and the birds and over every living creature, ruling over them. And we read words in Psalm 8 at the start of our service that said, you know, you've made humanity a little lower than the angels to rule over all that you have made, and it picks up on that language of the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and living creatures on the grounds. So, this seems to be the thrust of what it means to be made in God's image. The fancy language, if you want it, is that we are God's vice regents. He is the king, we are the vice regents. We rule, in a sense, on His behalf on the earth. He's the king and ruler of all, and we have the responsibility given to us by Him to rule. On the earth over creation. Now we give that away at the fall, but for now we have it. In Genesis 1, we have it. We're made in God's image, we rule over the creation. So, just to, to, to recap all of those, because th- these are the building blocks literally for the, the nine weeks we have going ahead. God is the creator, he creates through his word. It's very good. God interacts with time, he steps in and, and interacts with time so that humanity can relate to him. All creation has a purpose. Humanity is the pinnacle of that, made in His image. And as such, we have a responsibility to rule over His creation as His representatives. Now, I think tonight, as we have thought about all of that, there are a number of of very practical takeaways from Genesis 1 and 2, just as we've thought about those points in particular. And again, I, I know we haven't gone through the text in loads and loads of detail, But in terms of practical takeaways, I I think firstly, it it teaches us humility because we are not God. You know, that speaks to so many who who don't believe in a creator God atheists and secularists that say that, that this is it and this is us and we are here and we are the most important and humanity is the center of everything. But we as Christians, we don't believe that. We believe that there is a God. To Whom we are due to give reverence, and so it, it doesn't just speak to, to that argument of of what there is and we believe there is a God, and others don't, but it also speaks to us in our in our personal lives it keeps us humble in our relationship with God because it speaks to our sin because the root of all sin is that we make ourselves God isn't it it's selfishness it's pride it 's what I want against what God wants for me and when we sin what we want wins out against God. It's as if we are making ourselves God, as it were. But Genesis one reminds us and gives us that humility that we are not God and it keeps us in our place. But as much as it puts us down here and keeps us in our place, remembering that that God is God, secondly it, it actually gives us a purpose in life. It it brings us right back up again. Because God has put us here, first and foremost, to know Him, but also to to rule over His creation, to look after what He has made. And so that gives all of us purpose in in whatever we're doing. It gives you purpose in your job. If you're a salesperson tonight, as you go out, as you image God, as you provide for others, as you provide a service to them, well, actually, what you're doing in that as you image God is, is you're caring for some of His creatures. Yes, you mightn't do it for free because you're a salesperson, so you want to make a bit of money, but that's okay. But what you're doing, it has that purpose of providing for others, of looking after them. That's part of imaging God. If you're a teacher here tonight, clearly you provide for others. You want to bring them up. You want to bring kids up to be citizens who, who play a positive part in this world. Yes, you want to do a lot more than that, hopefully you want to model Christ to them so that one day, hopefully through your witness, they might become followers of Jesus too. But even before we get to any of that, we are God's image bearers to them. We want to look after them as creatures that He has made also in His image. But it's not just about one another, it's about our world too, isn't it? I don't know how you feel about um, environmentalists and what is it, extension rebellion, making all these protests in London. I'm not suggesting that Christians should go to lengths like that, but we do have a responsibility as Christians to to steward. Steward is the word we normally use because it sounds fancy, but we're to look after the world around us. We are meant to get involved with things that protect the earth around us, Whether it's something as simple as recycling, maybe for some of us it's being called to get involved in a more active way in campaigning. But this is God's world and He has made us in His image and that means that we are on His behalf to look after it. And that's a responsibility that maybe we don't talk about very often, but it's very real and it's rooted in the opening chapters of the Bible. I think the third practical application is is that it speaks to science. And I've already Um, alluded to this a little bit earlier. But I think the key point here is just distinguishing. What Genesis 1 helps us to do is to distinguish between what science's role actually is and what the role of our faith is. Because all that science really is interested in, particularly when we're talking about how the world came to be, is how it happened and when it happened. You know, people are, are concerned about how many years ago it was or whatever, and that's what science is trying to answer. But the Bible, our faith, gives us answers to questions that that science can't answer. The Bible answers the questions of who and why. Because no matter what scientific theory people come up with, whether we want to agree with it or disagree with it, it always leaves those questions unanswered. Who did it? Who made that happen? why did it happen? Even if you were to accept some of the scientific theories, and I'm not going to go into those, but if you were to accept something like the Big Bang, let's just say that for, a, for a, a moment, for an example, we believe that when God said, let there be light, that was a big explosion. We might believe that, we might not, but let's just say for a moment that we do. Science can't answer the question of why that happened or who made it happen. Where did those particles come from that joined together to explode? And if you can answer where they came from, well, well, who created the things that they came from? Science can only answer so much. But Genesis answers the who and the why question. and It's important to keep those things in their place. And then fourthly, Genesis 1 and 2 show us that we are valuable. We are made uniquely in God's image to relate to Him, to reflect His image. If you're here tonight and, and you're struggling Maybe you feel that you're invaluable, that your life has no value, that your life has no purpose. Now, that might seem a bit strange, but we probably all feel at least a little bit like that from time to time. Genesis 1 speaks to say, no, that's not true. Think of all the things you know about God, how great He is, how wonderful He is, how powerful He is, and you are made in His image. You are made to represent Him on earth. You are made to do His work, as it were, on this earth. You cannot say that your life has no value or no purpose when you know you're made in the image of God. It simply doesn't make sense to think that. In whatever you do in your life, you are an image bearer of God. As you provide for other people, as you speak to other people, as you witness to them, as you tell them about Christ, you are an image bearer of God. But it also speaks then to the beginning and end of life issues, because if we believe that human beings are made in the image of God, well then it speaks to those issues like abortion and euthanasia. And we don't have time to go into that this week, but many of you will probably have heard that the British Medical Association this week um, reversed its previous position, which was to oppose euthanasia now that the British Medical Association doesn't hold that position where it opposes euthanasia anymore. It doesn't support it, but it, it doesn't officially oppose it. And as Christians, we shouldn't stand idly by as these kinds of things happen. If all humanity is made in the image of God, then it is not for us to say when a life starts or when a life ends, because life is precious. Just before um, we do the last little section, I just want to point out the little snapshot to you um, at the bottom of your page. So this is just an image of creation. Again, this week is called A Very Good Creation, A Very Good World. And here we see man and woman created on the earth, and there's a little crown above. And that shows that that was our purpose, made in God's image, to rule over the earth. So hopefully that fits in with what you've heard tonight. So to close, I I just want to ask a question where does this all fit in? I mean, does this really matter? Does it really matter what we believe about the creation of the world if we believe in, in the cross? Surely if we're, we're saved, that's all that really matters. I remember um, as a 17-year-old going to a particular church um, where a particularly prominent um, speaker of the, of the gospel was preaching. I won't, I won't name him. Um, it's not the one who used to preach um, a little further down the Ravenhill Road, but it was somebody who was, who was very prominent, was preaching, and it, it was a youth service. And what they said at the end of their talk um, stuck with me because I didn't agree with it, and I still don't agree with it, but it, it really stood out. I was really surprised they said it. What they said was, you can reject it all, you can reject Genesis and creation. You can, you know, if, if, you, if you think Noah's too far-fetched, that's fine. If you think Jonah being inside a big fish is too far-fetched, that's fine. You can believe that. The only thing that matters is the cross. If you reject the cross, then your soul is in terrible danger. Now, I agreed with them in as, yes, if you reject what Jesus did on the cross, your soul is in danger but I remember thinking, no, Jesus coming and and having to die on the cross doesn't make any sense without the Old Testament. I I, I didn't um, agree with it. And as I've prepared this week, and as I've been looking particularly at John 1, I don't think the New Testament agrees with him either, because Genesis 1 also tells us something about our Savior. It does matter. It does tell us about our Savior as we look at it through the lens of the New Testament, and especially John chapter 1. More familiar words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John clearly thought in in introducing Jesus… And maybe the most important part of his letter as he opens, as he tries to grab his readers' attention, as he tries to convince them that he has something important to communicate them, he intentionally goes for those words In the beginning, in the beginning, Jesus is the Word. He was with God from all eternity. In fact, He is God. He's eternal. Everything was made through Him. He's the one gives life. He is the light. He's misunderstood by those who don't have the light. John 1 is clearly a very deliberate echo of Genesis 1. God spoke, and it was. There was evening, there was morning. The eternal God somehow steps into time. And as Jesus comes to earth, He does so as the Word of God as the eternal God, somehow he steps into time, he's born, he becomes a man, and all of this is tied up in creation. Because just as God made humanity in the first place, he made his children, as you might say, so Jesus comes to give us the right to become children of God. Jesus is in the process of creation, new creation, perfect, unspoiled bliss. And this is the Christian hope. And that's where the cross fits in, because at the cross, Jesus takes on himself all that spoiled the creation in the first place. And as he rises to new life, so he allows us to become part of that new life, that new creation, where we will dwell and rule with him as God's image bearers forever. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Again, we praise you for the world around us, the beauty of it, your power, the wonder of your creation. You simply spoke, and it was. Lord, we praise you. And yet, as we sang a little while ago, even though all these things are beautiful, Jesus is fairer, Jesus shines brighter. Lord, we give you thanks that he is in the business of making us new and making all things new. We give you thanks that he is the one who initiates the new creation. And so, Lord, we pray just as we have studied these portions of the Bible together tonight that you would help us realize that the magnitude of that, the magnitude of what it is to be made in your image, the magnitude of what it is to have value in your sight as your image bearers, and so much value that you sent your Son to die for us. Lord, help us to never lose the wonder of that. In Jesus' name, amen.